This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Is violence on the rise in our elementary schools? Uh, Teachers unions are saying that a lack of government funding for special needs students is leaving them ill-equipped to deal with some of the violent activity that is happening. And uh, it's an ongoing problem. This is not the first time we've raised this issue, but it's a problem that uh, in some parents' minds doesn't seem to be getting any better. Joining us to talk about this is Manny Figueroa, who is the Director of Education for the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. Now, Manny, first of all, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for being on the program today. Very important issue. Uh, you and I have had discussions about this in the past. Let's maybe set the scene for, for what's happening here. I mean, the... the the, the, I know the high, I saw the hecto- headline in the Spectator today as they covered this story, and they say violence is on the rise in local schools. Well, this there's a, a concern here about s- the types of violence, and uh, this is classroom violence, sometimes against teachers, sometimes against fellow students. Uh, but there are some uh, some health issues that are at play here, as well as funding issues, are there not? Yeah. So I'd always like to preface this um, that reminder. I'll speak about our board. We have almost fifty thousand students who come to school each day, and we have fantastic educators who provide phenomenal programming for our students, and uh, we want all our students to, to leave the end of the day saying, I had a great, safe day, but, um, so I just want to context, put, put a context, but we have noticed that the reporting of, of, of incidents um, connected to, to violence has been on the rise, uh, especially over the last few years. Why is that happening? Yeah, if, if I had... Uh, if I had that that answer, that the, the the silver bullet for this question, it's complex, and I and I think um, it's a multiple of things. One thing I've said in the past, we've seen. I can speak about Hamilton. We are seeing that uh, we have an increase of students who are choosing to come to Hamilton, families for the right reasons, uh, because we provide in Hamilton and the public board with our health partners a, a variety of services. So we do have students. Um, or with special needs, who, who have been choosing Hamilton Public Board, and we service around 25% of our population access to some type of special education services. So That's a rather high number. Is that is that is that near a provincial average? I mean, obviously you track these sorts of things. 25% seems relatively high, Manny. Well, it's a great question you've asked. Is it a provincial average? No. Um, most recently, there was four school boards that have, were part of a, a um, Auditor General's re- uh, review last year, and it showed um, there were there were two, uh, four boards, two of the boards, Hamilton and ha- Hastings, Prince Edward Island, were 26 to 27 percent serving students with special needs, and there were two other uh, boards that were 12 to 16 percent. So it, it's not a, it's not an average. So some boards, based on community and community agency services, will attract families who need that kind of support. So that's not a uh, a provincial average or consistent across school boards in Ontario. And, and it's not a reflection on the board, nor is it on the students. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you're a family that has a child with special needs, you're looking uh, for a circumstance that's going to be able to accommodate those needs. Yeah, and we see that. And you guys do that. That's that's actually, in, in, a, in a way, it's a compliment to the Hamilton board that you provide those services. Yeah, and we welcome and we, we, we want students, all students, uh, to be participating with us. And we know that... The, Depending on their needs, we have to be a little more creative in terms of how we program and how we resource. We know, though, in terms of what we're funded for special education, we spend almost $78 million a year to provide support. And we do, and our board of trustees have been committed. They, they actually spend more than what we're, our funding envelope is. However, I just want to be careful as well to say that it's, 
you know, the instance might occur that I'm just not connected to students with with special needs, but um, sometimes some students who, who do come might not have the cognitive ability to realize some of their of uh, their behaviors, and so we have to learn more around training for our staff. What are the triggers for these students, and what kind of resources and environments do they need? Um, th- that'll help them get through a day in a more productive way. All right, let me ask you something, though, Manny. I mean, the, the number, the, the dollar figure that you mentioned there is, is a big number. We get that. So you're spending a lot of money on that, and, 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 and that's good to know. But these, uh, these incidents that we're hearing about now, which seem to be on the increase, indicate that maybe the resources aren't there. What are your thoughts on that? Well, every year, and we're in this 20 years as well, we, we budget every year, um, resources such as consultants, such as educational assistants, such as our, our, our DECEs in our kindergarten classrooms. And we also, based on uh, review every spring, um, special type of programming. So are there different environments or different type of classes or different type of uh, smaller classroom environments or, or different alternative education programs in different environments that students might need? The public board here does offers a continuum range, but we are we are pressed each year, and we feel our, our resources are stretched to try to meet those needs. But our again, our trustees review that every year, and that's why I believe they're committed and continue to spend over that envelope. But there is a finite number uh, at the end of at the end of the day. Well, and and listen to be clear about this, we've talked about this, and we've talked about spe- some of the special programs, and and your board is is to be congratulated on offering a number of different initiatives. Uh, there are some students in the Hamilton board that simply are, are not going to thrive in a classroom environment, and you do provide alternatives for that, and, and that's wonderful. But uh, there have to be numbers. That's the sad reality to this situation. And, uh, and I hear from parents constantly, Mandy, and I'm sure you certainly do, of course, uh, with your position with the board, that look, at it, you know, it's not enough. Uh, the, yes, I've got a, a, a teaching assistant who looks after my son or daughter or whatever in a classroom environment, but they're only there half day. What happens the other half? And, and I've heard from teachers that are saying, look, at, uh, we're doing the best we can here, but you know we have to be special needs teachers. We have to look after the rest of the class. Uh, there can be incidents that are occurring where they take everybody's attention away from this. There, There's a lot of frustrated people here. Oh, you know what, uh, Bill? You're absolutely right. I hear the same conversations. Like these incidents can range. I just want to give context. They can range, range from some, you know, serious physical altercation. It could also range from a child in a in a in a kindergarten class with a pool noodle who might hit, um, you know, an adult or, or teacher. But all those, based on legislation, people are expected, you know, to report them. But there is a range of, of what of, of of what they are. I think you've hit it. Um, there is more training required because as educators now, things have changed. So uh, when we think about, um, you know, they cut educators, whether EAs, ECs, or teachers, uh, they come from their discipline train, but then when they're in a certain context or in a, in a certain classroom, they need to have some training in terms of what are some of the um, strategies that work for certain students. And then it needs to sometimes become very personalized for an individual. And we know that one of the challenges becomes is when that student builds a relationship and connection with that professional that works, and sometimes uh, as the student changes, that professional might not be the same educator or professional, and that's a trigger for kids as well. So our teachers and educators have said we do need more resources and more training to understand how uh, uh, to program 
and de-escalate some of these situations. So we know that's a, a big responsibility of the board to provide that ongoing training. And I understand that there are staffing issues here, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't want to get too specific here because you offer and, and, and deal with a wide range of different circumstances and situations uh, with a, a lot of these students. But for somebody, for instance, who's living with autism, we know, for instance, the change in routine can be somewhat problematic and can throw somebody into disarray. And, and that can happen with EAs from time to time. And, and that changes things. I get that. But one of the other complaints that I'm hearing uh, from parents, and, and I want to get you to address this if I could, Manny, is, uh, is the teachers themselves. And I'm not trying to cast aspersions on them, but do they receive the training? The EA is trained to look after certain situations, and, and, and they have their own uh, set of criteria that they're looking at. But the teachers themselves have the overall responsibility of the classroom environment. Uh, and at times, I've heard stories where they actually look at the students that are challenged and say they're a distraction, they're a problem, and they get singled out. Uh, which really is making a bad situation worse when that happens. How much current training and what kind of training do the teachers themselves uh, receive to try to deal with the, with students that are challenged, and and to avoid some of those triggers that you just talked about? Right. So you know, I go back to um, you know, I was an educator in a classroom too, and I remember the variety of students I had. And you know, the board provides some level of training, and people come out of their faculty of education's train, but. It, you know, I would say would be, it's never enough because we always have to update and train um, teachers based on, you know, the different um, students or exceptionalities they might be working with. And some of these strategies, what we call learning for all, they're universal. If they work for some uh, specific student, they'll work for all. But it's an ongoing thing we have to uh, have to do. And, and this is the tension that we, 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 we live with, that everyone has a right to be safe in the school, but every child also has a right to, to a, a public um, um, education. And sometimes these incidents uh, um, are emotionally draining for the educator and for the child, but we have to come back at it. And at the end of the day, the child has a right to be there, but so does the safety of all the other children. And sometimes it's the unknown, because when we haven't experienced that or haven't for the first time in our career, we are now maybe teaching a student whose parents say, I want my child with autism or with fetal alcohol syndrome to be in a regular classroom and not in a, you know, in a special self-contained classroom, because that's, and that's the parent's right. So that training will look a little different for that educator, but we always need to invest in the training um, because students are, and parents are expecting more to be included in the regular classroom. And, and at the end of the day, our goal is to make sure those students, they're in the regular classroom and inclusive environment, we need to make sure they're integrated into society because we want them to fully be independent and be integrated into society. And I understand that parent perspective. What happens when an incident does occur, though? How do you deal with that? I know it, it, it changes from situation to situation, but, I mean, you and I, the last time you were in studio here with uh, Todd White, we talked about a couple of situations uh, about suspensions, and which is a word that, that's a, it's a, let's face it, it's a flashpoint when you use that word. And I know even the, in, the, in the spec story today uh, that Tevia wrote, Tevia Moore wrote, uh, Morrow wrote, that it talked about right off the top about a suspension to the child who uh, was alleged to have been involved in an incident, and the parents were outraged. Why would you suspend somebody? And you've, I know you classified that as a cooling-off period, but the, the word itself uh, has certain connotations to it as if you're the problem. How do you deal with that? Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, we have safe schools legislation that requires to review situations. So if there's been, a, um, you know, an incident where an educator has, has been physically harmed, and if it's from a child with special needs, we have to look, legislation requires us to look at mitigating circumstances. In other words, you know, does that child have the ability to understand what they were doing? And same token, does that educator feel safe um, and we didn't have to un- un- unpack what were the triggers, what precipitated this behavior. But, but uh, under the legislation, um, we, we review the mitigating circumstances. For example, what might have been for some student who doesn't have mitigating circumstances could have been a 20-day suspension pending removal to another school, expulsion to, well, this is a student, we still, there still needs to be a cooling off period, we need to regroup, we need to revisit what our plan is, there's still a suspension because um, someone doesn't feel safe within the school and there's been an incident, but it's not a 20-day. It's, it's less because we understand that child uh, might not have had you know, the ability to understand uh, the consequences of, of, of their actions. So legislation allows us to look at mitigating circumstances, but then we need to respond and then put what's the action plan when, it, when the child returns and what other resources or options are there that we need to consider. I know it's a very complex problem, and, and there's not any way in heaven's name we're going to solve this thing in the 15-minute discussion that we're having right now. Uh, but we did want to bring it to our uh, our listeners' attention once again and know that the board is aware of this and working on this. Manny, I'm, I'm sure there'll be more discussions about this in the future. Thanks so much for this today. Well, thank you, Bill. And we need to continue to have this conversation. And we will. Thanks again, Manny. Manny okay, Figueroa, who's you. the uh, Director of Education for the Hamilton Board of Education. Uh, email. Uh, from Elizabeth uh, on this very topic says, although my son ended up in the perfect classroom situation, dash through the SOA program, it took many years and much hard work to get him there. Our experience was that the initial meeting with staff, vice principal, social workers, etc., went well with all the right things being said, but in the actual implementation, things fell apart quickly. The accommodations promised were not available. There was always some excuse as to why the agreed independent education plan was not being followed. I'm not sure whether it was just the school we were at or the board problem, but until the XL program, that's a special needs program, I guess, uh, was there, we were very unsatisfied parents of special needs students. Thank you, Elizabeth, for that email. I think that characterizes a lot of the frustrations that many of the parents are are dealing with on a daily basis with this. And uh, it's not just funding. I know that they love to point to the provincial government and say they need more money, uh, but throwing money at a problem is not always the solution. That may well be part of it. But uh, there has to be staffing situations and many other things addressed here, and maybe a better understanding by everybody about uh, the challenges of some of the students in those situations. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, as uh, you know, uh, there is a proposed uh, march going to be happening on Sunday morning uh, down Lock Street. Actually, there are two groups that are going to be meeting. Uh, one apparently is uh, considered to be a uh, right-wing radical group, and there is a counter-group at the other end, I guess, of the spectrum uh, that are going to be marching, they say, in protest to the other group. Uh, yeah, I know, that sounds rather toxic, and things could get a little bit messy. Well, Hamilton Police Service, of course, uh, are aware, are on the job, and uh, we wanted to get some clarification about actually what's going to be happening, and uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome a Deputy Chief of Police, Dan Kinsella, uh, to the Bill Keller Show on CHML. It's good to see you again, Dan. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure, Bill. Nice to see you. Thanks Listen, for before me. we get into that, which is a rather complex issue, I, I just uh, quickly want to touch on the uh, naloxone issue. Now, we've talked about this for the longest time, and Chief Gert 
uh, has been on the record uh, as uh, well. And and to be fair, never said that he was opposed to this. He just said he wanted to get more information. Uh, you've announced this week now that uh, that your officers will be carrying kits. What was the thing that swayed you into that decision? Well, there was a, a number of factors, and and we've been monitoring the uh, the environment. And and first and foremost, uh, we're most interested in harm reduction. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that we get people the treatment that is required. There's certain things that happen after the treatment, and and the position of the police service and the chief is that EMS are the best people to to provide uh, not only the administering of, of naloxone but that follow up treatment. So uh, we do know that there has been some um, uh, busyness in regards to EMS and their ability to. Uh, You're talking about the code. Zeros. The code zeros and to, to get the offloading of the the, uh, the patients at the hospital and those kind of things, getting back into service. So when we look at it and take everything in totality, it was time to say um, we need to be at the forefront of this and make sure that we're providing that care and giving those individuals uh, the opportunity uh, immediately if we're there to be able to take action. That's what we've provided for our officers. And then subsequent to that, obviously, we'll be calling EMS to provide that follow-up medical treatment. Certainly. Now, when does that start? Well, as soon as we can um, get the uh, grant proposal in uh, to the government to get the funding. Uh, we just have to look after the training piece, and then as soon as we possibly can, I'll be tasked with that to make sure that we get that in the hands of the officers. Uh, a little quicker than that, we'll be able to supply it to the specialty units, vice and drugs, forensics, our custody area, to make sure it's available. And then for the individual officers, we'll take a little bit longer, but we're going to be doing that as quickly as possible. Now, the good news is you just touched about making an application <clears throat> for this. This is provincially funded. That's correct. So this it's not going to be a burden on taxpayers, uh, municipal taxpayers. The province is allocating the money for this. That's that's correct. That's a good. That's a, a good part of the story. So, I just wanted to get some clarity on that. All right, let's let's talk about Lock Street. Uh, we we already know that what happened there a couple of weeks ago with, with the, the the march and the damage that was controlled and and the reaction to that, etc. And and you heard Dan that, that there was some criticism, and I know the chief responded to the criticism and 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 went through the protocol about exactly what happened and how officers responded. Uh, now we seem to be having an incident. Uh, this is different than it was that time because you've got advance notice on this. How do police respond to a story like this? I mean, uh, you're you're kind of between a rock and a hard place here. I mean, we have a charter of rights and freedoms. We have the right to assembly. We have the right to free speech. But at the same time, you've got a neighborhood right now that's kind of skittish. Right. And we do have to be cognizant of the charter and and, an individual's right to freedom of expression and the ability to demonstrate and and present their cause. However, um, there is a line, and and that line uh, is that that has to be done lawfully peacefully. And, you know, we ask people, we, we encourage people to be considerate and respectful of, of the community and the neighbors and all those kind of things. Um, if the actions of individuals that are protesting or demonstrating, uh, regardless of their philosophy or what they're trying to communicate to us, um, it must be done lawfully. It must be done peacefully. And we'll be ensuring that that takes place on the weekend. Uh, let's talk about that line that gets crossed because there could be variations, I guess, on that theme. Uh, obviously, we don't want to see violence. I don't think anybody's looking for that. Hopefully, that's not going to happen. But there is the potential for conflict now because you've got two very different uh, philosophies and two very different groups uh, uh, that that are not speaking nicely about each other right now. Uh, do, do police try to get between them? Do you observe? What's the protocol? And I know you're not going to give me specifics, so I'm not even going to ask. 
but but from a, a philosophical standpoint, for a game plan standpoint, uh, where where will you be on Sunday? So we will be in the area. We will be highly visible. We will be uh, presenting a graduated response of the appropriate resources to make sure that um, we can prevent. We want to prevent offenses, and we will prevent them, whether they be provincial, bylaw, criminal. Uh, we part of it is this communication piece today, and and others that uh, we've been putting out. We've been putting people on notice, basically, to let them know. Yeah, we're going to respect your right to peacefully, lawfully protest. However, if you're going to amp it up and you're going to commit criminal offenses, if you're going to put a mask on to conceal your identity and that becomes an unlawful assembly, then we're going to react and we're going to take the appropriate action. Because more than uh, more than uh, keeping the community safe, which we're uh, determined to do and, and we owe it and we will do that for the community, uh, we also have the periphery quality of life issues that spill out. And, and uh, it's just not right to have to have the residents in and around Lock Street see mass people walk up the street. It's terrifying. And, and we need to uh, make sure that we get that message out there. And again, lawful, uh, peaceful, we're, we're happy to facilitate that. Um, if it moves into the criminal aspect, then, then we're going to be taking action. And there were times when you, you, it looks like you're just looking, but I mean, and the, the one that comes to mind is, I remember years ago, I guess, when uh, some of the, the First Nations uh, actually decided to shut down the, uh, the Lincoln and the, and the Red Hill uh, for a peaceful march up there, and, and I know that inconvenienced some people because it blocked traffic, et cetera, and police were on the scene, but you were there to simply control the situation. Is is that the mindset that you're taking here? Well, certainly we don't want anyone to get injured. We we, we don't want there to be any violence, and and uh, uh, we don't want injuries, and, and we don't want property damage either. Um, however, uh, we still have to maintain and keep the peace. That's fundamentally our role. So uh, that's what we'll be looking for. That's what we'll be monitoring. Um, we're encouraging everybody. We're in contact with all the various groups um, to let them know that, hey, uh, come out, exercise your right as a, as a citizen of Canada. Um, you have that ability. Do it properly. Do it peacefully. And uh, respect your neighbours. What are they saying? So you have talked to these people. Well, we would not, not, there's been no dialogue back and forth, but the messaging to them is that. Um, and again, that message will be presented again on Sunday when, when and, and, and if we, we get into this situation. So we have that dialogue. And, and we want to make, we want to be very clear. Um, we want to be clear with the community. The community needs to, to know and have, uh, uh, you know, trust and, and they want to feel safe. So that's what we're, we're going to be working on. And the other piece is the community has been very active. And I want to just mention, to them and thank the community for notifying us and giving us all the information that they have. Um, it's one of those things. If you see something, say something. The community's doing it. The community's mobilized. We want to work with them. We don't want them to get involved in anything. Um, that's why we're there and they will see us out there, but we do appreciate all the information that's coming in. A more general uh, question, which may or may not apply to these groups that are going to be doing their, their protesting on Sunday. Do you track these uh, groups that, that are known to police? I mean, uh, I got word on this from actually one of our folks at Global News that the track social media and you just said hey have you seen this so, so facebook posting and i'm sure you've seen it since, since then but but uh, is there a department are there officers that are, are looking and and tracking the the thought patterns and and the postings etc of, of of groups like this if not these specifically Yes, and we're constantly monitoring the environment for potential threats. We're uh, mon monitoring social media, both open and closed sources, to the extent that we can. Uh, we have a number of uh, people in the community that provide information on various things that are going on. So we are tracking, we're developing profiles, and, and we're making sure that, that uh, we keep 
an eye on what's happening uh, within the city to proactively get involved where we can. However, having said that, sometimes, um, Lock Street a few weeks yeah, ago, yeah. Uh, it, was, it, it wasn't on the radar. There was no advance warning. There was nothing that came forward on that. Um, different scenario uh, then from, from this weekend, but we are. We're monitoring, and, and there's different ways that uh, people communicate, whether it be through social media, encrypted channels sometimes, those kind of things. And it's, uh, it's important to remember that while we're monitoring and doing what we do, um, other groups are out there uh, planning and, and doing what they do. So it's incumbent on us to stay ahead of that, and we do that. Uh, speaking of that last incident, any updates on that? I know there was an ongoing investigation. And the investigation continues, and uh, we will... Um, you know, we're going to uh, completely and thoroughly investigate that. We're working with counterparts uh, across uh, Canada, gathering information, and uh, we will continue to do that. And it's open. Uh, anybody that has any information, we'd appreciate it. Uh, we have collected uh, a, a bunch of evidence that's helping us uh, try to follow it and try to uh, identify individuals, and we continue to work on that. Are you surprised by this? I mean, you've been in this town for a long time as a police officer and watched this. And, and the reaction we heard from an awful lot of people after the last incident was, why Hamilton? That's, that's, that's just not Hamilton. You expect this in, in Paris and in London and, and other places, maybe even Toronto. We've seen incidents. I've talked to some of my friends there that have covered this. But it's, it seems atypical of Hamilton. Or are you surprised at all? Well, we, we haven't had a similar type incident. So, um, you know, on some level, uh, I, I'm a little surprised. I'm disappointed in the people that came and, and did that. We have uh, that weekend, we had events in the city that draw uh, individuals that are, are that kind, have that kind of mind and philosophy. Um, and, and, and we saw that. We also saw tactics uh, that were deployed in regards to masking their faces in a group, concealing their identity, those kind of things. So um, I think the broader message is, is that we're not immune. And I think things like this can happen everywhere. That's why we need to remain uh, vigilant. And that's why we need to continually monitor the situation, gathering intelligence. We need people to report. So, um, you know, we have to pay attention. And, and, and it happened in our backyard. And our goal this weekend is to make sure it doesn't happen again. You mentioned covered faces. And we were told that at least one of the groups has said right up front that they are going to cover their faces because they're afraid of reprisals, not from police, but from the other group. Uh, that's not illegal to cover your face, is it? Or well, is it? Well, um, it, there's, there's, again, there's a line. And yeah. um, what can happen is if we have a number of people in, in a group, uh, three or more, with their faces masked, um, it can reach the threshold of a criminal offense. Uh, of unlawful assembly. There's other elements that are involved, um, terror, threat of violence, all those kind of things. In light of what happened in the last couple of weeks here in the city of Hamilton, um, if a group of individuals show up and they're masked and they're on Lock Street, I think that we need to take an assessment and the temperature to say, why are they masking their faces? They don't want anybody to see them and identify them. Um, if you want to lawfully and peacefully protest, you should come. You should show your face. Communicate your message. We're here to facilitate that. If it reaches a threshold of a criminal offense, we will take zero tolerance and, and we will enforce the criminal code. And what they're doing by doing that is creating terror. People are afraid. Children are afraid. And uh, quite frankly, it's frightening for people in the community. Let's talk a little bit about hate speech. And I know we're getting into some of the specifics, but these may be calls that the officers on 
that scene are going to have to make. Uh, there may be yelling. There could be screaming in situations like that. Where was that line with crossing? I mean, uh, I can yell at you. Can I call you a name? Or I mean, the officers are going to be listening. You're going to have to make some value judgments about this. Yeah, and I won't get into too many details about that. I think fundamentally um, what we need to stick to is lawful and peaceful. Um, obviously, if somebody, uh, you know, there's some verbiage that's being passed back and forth, um, you know, that's part of the, the demonstration and part of the protest. Um, if it crosses the line into hate speech and that becomes... The slogans that are being yelled. If it becomes criminal, then insults, we'll assess it. Insults take, that are being yelled. Uh, well, it depending, depending on what they are and how they're presented and, and what the meaning and, and the background is to it, um, assessments will have to be made at the scene. Fundamentally, we're out there, lawful, peaceful, we're going to facilitate that. Um, if it crosses a line, we're going to hold a zero tolerance uh, attitude towards that. And uh, the individuals that are, are, are participating in this, the message is, um, do it lawfully, do it peacefully, respect your neighbors. Um, once it becomes something different, uh, violence, threats of violence, intimidation, creating terror, those kind of things, um, we will have to make some judgments at the time and deploy the appropriate resources. Again, a logistical problem. I mean, Lock Street, well, they say they're going to assemble at Victoria Park and, and march down Lock Street. Uh, that's a, a thoroughfare. I mean, there, there may be people that want to drive down Lock Street. There may be people that want to to, to go to one of the, the shops on Lock Street. I was, we were there last Sunday morning. It's very busy on Sunday morning on Lock Street. Uh do you do you close the street off? Do you say no vehicular traffic? What, how do police handle something like that? Well, that's going to be a case by case basis based on the scenario, depending what what we see. Um, we don't want anybody to get hurt, so we're going to maintain the peace, and and it will just depend on on what's happening. Um, traffic has to flow. To your point, we have sidewalks for people to walk and and get to where they need to in the city of Hamilton. Uh, that's the recommended route. We'll deal with whatever else comes up at the time, and and uh, make sure that we protect. And and we're there to protect everyone and we don't want anybody to get run over by a car and we don't want a, a driver that's going somewhere on a Sunday morning to be involved in a collision. So we have to take all the factors into consideration to make sure that we maintain a safe environment. Um, but again, sidewalks for people that are pedestrians and walking, the roadways are for the cars, but we'll assess as we go along. I, I could just see a scenario here where you want those guys on this side, these guys on this side, and, and maybe a couple of lanes of traffic between them wouldn't be a bad idea, but you don't know how that's going to roll out either. Uh, they're not going to be the only ones on the street. What's your message to the others? There are going to be people that want to go shopping, that want to go to Donut Monster, to, to the West Town. Uh, West Town's always packed on Sunday morning. Uh, they're going to be there. And I'm, I know some have said, well, we better avoid that. But a lot of others have said, hell no, we're not going to let these guys change. Right. What, what do you tell those people? Well, I want people to go about and live their lives and do what they would normally do on the Sunday morning or the Saturday morning. Um, you know, my job and with all the men and women on the, in the service uh, is to go out and make sure that uh, people are able to do that. And we're going to do that this weekend. So we want people to carry on. We want them to, to go about their business and whatever it is that they're going to do to continue to do that, knowing that the Hamilton Police Service will be out, uh, highly visible, we're going to be there, and we'll be prepared. What if uh, something goes awry, whatever it might be, any number of circumstances? You mentioned that police will have a presence. Is there is there a, uh, a, a situation where extra officers can be called in, not unlike what happened that last incident on lock? In fact, if things get out of hand? Well, we, that's for sure. We, we are going to, like I say, we are going to have a graduated response. We have a, 
a, a myriad of, of um, branches and units and different skill sets that will be available and, and be prepared to be deployed depending on the circumstances. Um, but we want to maintain normalcy. We want people to just go about their day and enjoy their day. Um, we will allow the demonstrators to do their thing provided they act within the rule of the law and uh, we will be prepared either way to, to respond. I don't know what the plans are for these folks. I mean, if they're starting at Victoria Park, I assume they're going to lock up lock, but I mean, lock-ins at, uh, at Aberdeen. Uh, is it okay, thanks guys for coming out, now go home? I mean, what's the message at that point? I, you like to think they're just like, going to go away at that point. Right, and and hopefully they'll they'll come, they'll do their thing peacefully, lawfully, and then they will go on their way. Um, but we'll have to deal with the situation as it unfolds on, on Sunday. And that's why we talk about the ability to be flexible, to be fluid, to respond. And, and sometimes people change and, and decide on different uh, avenues and maybe they won't go a certain way, they'll go a different way. We'll be prepared for that. Uh, yeah, we're talking Lock Street. You don't know what can happen, which is why obviously you're monitoring the situation as as it unfolds. I mean, uh, this has to be very fluid, I would think. Absolutely, and we have to have the ability to um, uh, to change uh, and respond to whatever we're presented with, uh, with the fundamental philosophy: um, uh, do it properly, obey the law, and and uh, you know exercise your rights that are guaranteed, and assembly and freedom of speech and those kind of things. Um, but if they cross the line into criminal activity, they'll be dealt with. One of the postings uh, that we saw from one of the groups that was, has been described as the alt-right group on this uh, have identified another location, another place in the city that they wanted to go and assemble at called the Tower. I know you're aware of the location. Uh, have you made accommodations for what could happen there? Yeah, so we have a, a the, the the plan and, and uh, our visibility will be broad-based. It's not just isolated to the area of Lock Street or Victoria Park. Um, we are watching all the areas of interest, and there are a number of them in the city that we need to pay attention to, so we'll have a presence, and we will have the ability to respond and react as required, um, depending on, on what happens with our, our protesters and demonstration group. It's going to be quite a morning. There's a road race going on that day. There is. Uh, the iconic Around the Bay race is going to be happening, so, I mean, uh, you're, you're going to be busy right through the downtown area. Yes, we will for sure. And, and uh, you know, it, it will be a busy day. There's going to be lots happening, but uh, uh, we'll be out and about and, and uh, we'll be there to greet everybody. Deputy Chief of Police Dan Kinsella, uh, here's hoping that we can sit here Monday morning and say, well, that was much ado about nothing. That would be the best outcome. Hoping. Well, we got our fingers crossed. Thanks again, Dan. Good to have you in here. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. June 7th, we go to the polls here in the province of Ontario to elect a uh, new government or the same government. Well, we don't know yet. Uh, You certainly heard some of the stories and the subtext about what's going on, and the circus around the election seems to have superseded that. But uh, at some point, I I hope so anyway, we're going to start talking about issues. And uh, with that, uh, we want to talk to uh, all the uh, leaders of the political parties about exactly what their platforms are going to be. Uh, to that end, we're so pleased to welcome our next guest. Uh, Mike Schreiner is the leader of the Green Party here in the province of Ontario. It's good to see you. We've talked on the phone many times. for the first time I've seen I had you in the studio. Good to have you, Mike. Yeah, Bill, it's great to be in studio. We're on our Green Vision Tour, uh, 2,500 kilometers, cities, uh, 20 cities in nine days, and it's great to be in Hamilton today. So you're the party leader that's not embroiled on controversies. How do you do that? No. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm boring in that regard. Maybe I like to talk about issues too much, so, so I'd love to talk about issues with you. Uh, well, we're going to do that. Uh, you guys are, are characterized as, uh, oh, you the Green Party. That's the that's that environmental party, uh, which is I guess is one element of this. But uh, but it's 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 a, a pretty narrow characterization. Oh, I tell you what, Bill, our Green Vision, uh, which I encourage people to go to gpo.ca/vision. 
we have a broad range of forward-thinking policies about putting people first, uh, focused on jobs, people, and planet. And uh, I'm very excited about the reception we're getting in communities across the province and at Doors because people are ready to do politics differently. Greens elected across Canada are showing people how politics can be done differently by putting people first. Let's and, and I'm I, by the way I don't want to give short shrift to environmental issues because I know that that's that's obviously very important. Uh, others are starting to come to that 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 role too, uh, in varying degrees, I guess we should say. But but there's so much more to this. I want to talk about some of the fiscal elements. But maybe maybe the better way to do this, Mike, is I want to talk about some of the things that are happening in Ontario right now and how how the Green Party would address those. Uh, and let's do the environmental thing right off the bat uh, about alternative forms of energy, about green energy. Uh, this government's been in power now for 14 years. Uh, one of the hallmarks of, of their government uh, is the Green Energy Act. That's one of the things they hang their hat on as, as being forward-thinking and, and progressive and the sort of thing that this province needed. Uh, I think there's a pretty strong case to be said that it has been mismanaged and uh, maybe misunderstood to a certain part. Uh, forget about, for the second, uh, what happened. Uh, you know, that, that stuff's behind us right now. Uh, if June 8th, uh, you're the premier of this province, how do you fix this? Yeah, well, um, what we're going to do is we're going to fix it by rolling out green energy properly. I was one of the first leaders to be very critical of the way in which the Liberals are rolling this out because they put their corporate friends ahead of community power. If you look at how green energy is being rolled out successfully around the world, particularly in Germany and Denmark, it's it's owned by local citizens, not multinational corporations. And so green energy is revitalizing local economies, creating local jobs, and providing local prosperity to particularly rural municipalities around the world. Unfortunately, the liberals didn't do it that way. They put corporate friends ahead of community power. What would you do about some of the, the the concerns that we've got right now about pricing? I mean, I was very concerned, and I, I mentioned this on the air, so I'll just repeat it now. Uh, during the last uh, progressive conservative leadership debate, when uh, Tanya Granick Allen said that uh, she wanted to rip the wind turbines out of the ground, <laughs> yeah, and, makes and, no sense. And, and, and what that was bad enough, but Doug Ford said, "Yeah, that sounds like a great idea." <laughs> uh, Christine Elliott was the adult in the room there that said, yes. "Do you understand that that means contracts that could cost billions of dollars, like the gas plant did?" Uh, you can't have a naive approach to this. Even no. if you have a philosophical difference with what the liberals have done, you've got to have a pragmatic approach about what we do going forward. Absolutely. And, you know, Bill, one of the things that we need to have is an honest conversation about why electricity prices are going up. You know, if you look at the global adjustment, that's what's causing your prices to go up. 46% of the increase in the global adjustment is due to nuclear contracts, about 17% due to renewable energy contracts, and most of that is due to the rebuilding of Niagara Falls through the Big Becky project. So it's not wind and solar that's driving up prices. I mean, yes, wind and solar is driving up prices somewhat, but it's actually nuclear. No nuclear plant in Ontario's history has ever come in on time or on budget. Now the Liberals want to waste $14 billion to $32 billion on rebuilding the Darlington nuclear plant, which is outdated, overpriced technology, when we can buy low-cost water power from Quebec at a third of the price. And the money we would save from not throwing it down the nuclear drain, we could take that money and invest it in your home and your business to help you save money by saving energy, increasing the value of your home and increasing the value of your business. That's the better approach to rising electricity prices. So you feel you can control prices by alternative forms? In other words, no nuclear? No nuclear. Absolutely. That's what's driving up the price. I mean, literally, I'm a small business owner, Bill. 
would you invest in outdated overpriced technology that's never delivered on time or on budget when you've got lower cost alternatives available to you? It makes absolutely no sense. You know, a great example is the Climate Change Center here in Hamilton at Mohawk College. They've put in one of the first net zero buildings in in the area. Uh, So their costs of heating, cooling, um, electrifying that building is going to be way reduced, uh, almost zero. And so that's how we can help people save money by saving energy. And the final point I want to make here is, is, you know, it is so irresponsible of this liberal government to put out the Band-Aid they've done with electricity prices, falsely subsidizing them by 25% before the election. They're going to go way up after the election because they haven't solved the root of the problem. And that's going to cost 40 to $90 billion. That's 40 to $90 billion that could go to health care, to education, to public transit, to the services that people expect, want, and need from government. But, it, but, but Premier Mike Schreiner is going to take that over. Uh, and on June 8th, when you know, you're going to say, well, you fix that. What do you do? How do you, do, yeah. do you, do you simply say we're going to roll those prices up? Because you're not going to be able to, to, you can't change the system overnight. Yeah. So you target those to the people who need it. So that 25% reduction is primarily a tax cut for the rich. Think about it. Wealthy people have bigger homes, more electronic devices. They use more electricity. So there's a lot of wealthy people who are getting a bigger discount than a lot of low-income people's entire electricity bill. So take that money, take that program, and target it to people with modest and middle incomes who need the help, uh, but don't spend 40 to $90 billion that you're taking away from health care, education, and other public services that people need. That is not a responsible way to spend people's money. One of the other contentious issues, since we're talking about energy and hydro, was Hydro One itself. Now, the government, of course, had to sell off of a great deal of that. Uh, Andrea Horvath is suggesting that if she becomes premier, she's going to buy those shares back. Uh, I, I asked her, frankly, I said, if I bought some of those shares and I didn't, uh, how are you going to convince me to sell them to you? I mean, you can't do that. I mean, this is a free market, I think, still, isn't it? What's, yeah. your, what's your solution to that? Yeah, Bill, you know what? First of all, the government made a huge mistake privatizing Hydro One, and Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals have to wear that mistake. It was a disastrous decision. It was, again, short-term thinking. This is another example of how short-term thinking hurts the people of Ontario. Uh, and it's going to have that's going to be a long-term financial disaster for the province. I would like to see the province at least get fifty percent of control of Hydro One again. So at least we have majority control. That? Well, the government could buy back those shares. Um, I think the cost of buying, and they can do that on the on the on the TSX, just like any other investor could do. The cost of buying back a hundred percent, though. Um, I'm nervous about that because I think it would have huge, huge costs to Ontario. And I don't know if that's the, I don't think that's the responsible way to go, but at least if we could become a majority shareholder again, but at 51%, we'd at least retain control of Hydro One. And so then it could be managed in the interest of the people of Ontario, not shareholder interest. Minimum wage uh, went up January the 1st. Uh, The liberal plan is for it to go up again uh, in just a few months, in fact, now. What's the, uh, the Green Party's position on that? You know what? Um, our position is is we can both have living wages for workers and fair taxes for small businesses. One of the things that really angers me, and this is an example of how we do politics differently, is I feel like the premier is playing wedge politics with people's lives, pitting workers against family-owned businesses, and the conservative establishment is saying, well, workers don't deserve to have um, a living wage and not have poverty-level wages. And the Green Party is saying, you know what, let's not make a wedge issue out of people's lives. 
let's do both. So let's increase the minimum wage so workers get a fair uh, return for the work that they do, and let's lower payroll taxes on small family-owned local businesses so they can afford to hire more people and pay those people a higher wage. Our plan provides immediate cash flow support for local family-run small businesses and helps workers get the money they deserve so they don't have to work at poverty-level wages. That's doing politics differently. Okay, so would a Green Party government uh, follow through with the extra $1 in Absolutely, raise? absolutely. And so that, would, that policy would be maintained then? That policy would be maintained, but we would what we would do differently is, is we would provide in next week's budget, I'm calling on the government in next week's budget, to lower taxes on local family-owned businesses so they can afford to pay a higher minimum wage to their workers. Now, their response to that is going to be, look at the small business tax in Ontario is already more than competitive. It's better than most of the states in the United States. Yeah, but you're talking about corporate income tax. We're talking about employer health tax. So, so lowering corporate taxes on small businesses really doesn't provide immediate help at all. Lowering their, and I can tell you this is a longtime small business owner, lowering uh, payroll taxes on small businesses provides immediate cash flow relief for local businesses. Um, we would do it by raising the exemption level for the employer health tax. It's currently $450,000. We would raise it to a million. So that means they would not pay employer health tax on their first million dollars in payroll. That will help small businesses right now on their month to month cash flow. This is a province with uh, very diverse interests, uh, depending on where you live and what part of the province in which you live, uh, whether it's urban, rural, uh, southern Ontario, northern Ontario, etc. But here where we are and where you are today here in Hamilton, Mike, uh, public transit in, in the GTA, uh, this whole area, Hamilton, Toronto, Oakville, Mississauga, mm-hmm. Brampton, uh, is the issue, and it's the, one of the issues that the, the government has hung their hats on with their commitment to light rail transit and increased transportation and increased uh, public transit. The Greens' position on this, I, and I'll get right to the, the consensus issue here in Hamilton, the light rail transit system. Uh, would, would Premier Schreiner fund that? Did you continue with that program? Premier Schreiner would fund that. We're big supporters of transit. I know light rail is a controversial issue in Hamilton, but what we would also do is fund better uh, inner city uh, transit as well. I mean, the fact that I cannot take, I live in Guelph, the fact that I cannot catch a go bus even from Guelph to Hamilton is outrageous. I can't even catch a go bus from Guelph to Kitchener-Waterloo. Outrageous. So we need better inner city rail transit as well as better inner city bus transit so people have affordable, reliable, accessible transit to get around the entire region. And Bill, the one thing we would do differently than all the other political parties is we would be honest with you about how to pay for it. You know, the liberals are doing it primarily through debt financing, which the interest payments on that debt's taking money away from health care, education, and other public services we need. And the conservatives and the NDP, whenever they talk about funding transit, they're in some magical fairyland where they think fairy dust is going to pay for it. So how we would pay for it is we would have congestion charges to go into Toronto, we would have park commercial parking levies within the GTA region, and we would have land value capture around transit stops. All the experts, there's been so many expert panels on this that have said, you know, that would raise over $2 billion to fund transit. 
And, and, and so that's the position the Green Party has taken. And I hope people respect us for being honest because I am so tired of politicians saying, we support this, we support that, and they won't tell you how to pay for it. And if we don't start electing politicians who are going to be honest with people, we will not have honest politics. Now, I, I began our conversation, Mike, by talking about the fact that the Green Party is not just environmental issues. And it seems as most of the stuff we've talked about is environment related. And, and so is the next topic. Uh, it's the carbon tax. But I'm going to, I'm going to justify this because there's more to the carbon tax than just the environmental concern. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a finance issue. It's a budget item. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a cash cow for some provinces in some situations. Uh, obviously, it's we pretty much know where the provincial government, as it stands right now, Premier Wynn supports the carbon tax here. Doug Ford says he'll scrap it. Uh, uh, the NDP obviously are in favor of something like this. There's a couple of variations on this right now. What's the Green Party's position on it vis-a-vis Ontario? So we need a climate change plan that's fair to people. And you know what? I think it's I think it's good that the Liberals have taken some steps, but you know what? They're kind of pretending to do something about it, but not really addressing the issue. The NDP's largely been missing an action on this issue, and the Conservative establishment now seems to be just climate deniers from what I can see. They started to flirt with doing something about it, but the new leadership um, has backed off on that. So what the Green Party would do is... is First of all, we would bring in carbon pricing uh, and escalate it up to a level that would change people's behavior and return all that money back to the people of Ontario. So particularly modest and middle income folks can deal with the transition to a low carbon economy. And what we would also do is, is we would stop the government from spending billions of dollars on fossil fuel dependent infrastructure um, you know, they want to keep building roads and highways and, and things that actually increase our carbon pollution. And then they throw a few hundred million dollars at things that would actually decrease carbon pollution. So we need to shift our infrastructure investments. We need to shift the way in which we support business development programs to support those pro- low carbon projects and those businesses that are going to help us leap into the future now and create 21st century jobs right now by investing in things like advanced manufacturing, bioproducts, clean technology. That's how we're going to rebuild the middle class. I call it the green middle class. Right now in Canada, 274,000 people work in clean energy. Average salary, $92,000. That's how we're going to rebuild the middle class through green innovation. I want to get back to the to the money from the carbon tax, though, that's, uh, because this has been implemented in other provinces. In British Columbia, uh, the money is doled back out in the way of uh, individual uh, uh, tax deductions. Mm-hmm. Uh, to each, in other words, everybody who pays tax gets a reduction. Uh, my understanding is the government of Manitoba is using the money from their carbon tax to actually lower the provincial tax for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, that's a conservative government that's uh, right. in, in Manitoba that's doing that. What would your plan be? Yeah, so our plan would be to return it to the people through a dividend check. So in the same way people got an HST rebate check when that transition happened, or the same way people get a child tax credit, the reason I like doing it that way better than uh, income tax cuts is, is that... Your ultimate goal, frankly, is that you don't want to collect any more carbon tax revenue because you don't want people polluting anymore. And so to base government revenues on that, I think, is dangerous because we don't want to take revenues away from central government programs like education, like health care, like affordable housing, like transit, like public services. But by returning it to people as a dividend check, then 
that helps people be able to invest in things that will help them um, conserve energy and save money. So maybe you'll buy LED light bulbs. Maybe you'll insulate your home. Maybe you'll buy a monthly transit pass. Maybe you'll buy a bicycle. Maybe you'll buy an electric vehicle. But you have the resources to figure out what makes sense for you to help you um, save money and save energy and reduce pollution. A very limited time left. Uh, hopefully this will be the first of a number of discussions we'll have. Uh, once the root is dropped, uh, there is going to be at least one, hopefully more than that, leaders' debates. Uh, how do you get an invite to the party? You know what? I would encourage everyone who wants to hear all four of the main political parties to go to fairdebates.ca. It's a non-affiliated action. As a matter of fact, somebody who used to work for another political party started this campaign to have the Green Party included in the leaders' debate. Their argument is, is there are four parties who get enough votes across the province to qualify for per-vote funding of political parties, and the citizens of Ontario have a right, and they deserve to hear from all four of those party leaders. So you can go to fairdebates.ca. There are politicians from across the political spectrum, as well as a number of prominent Canadians who are saying, we want to hear from the Green Party because Greens are being elected across the country. And when Greens are elected, people are seeing that you can do politics differently. You can do politics in a way that puts people first. And that's inspiring them to actually vote for more Greens. And we're seeing actually voter engagement and voter turnout go up because of the hope that Greens are bringing that we can do politics differently. Mike Schreiner, who is uh, the leader of the Ontario Green Party. Thanks so much for coming in, Mike. And uh, Bill, anytime. Enjoy the rest of your time here in Hamilton today. Yeah, I love Hamilton. So shout out to everyone in Hamilton today. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHM. 